There was a time when the only things parents had to worry about with regard to what we now call screen time was whether your child was watching too much TV. You didn't even have to think much about what he was watching because everything on TV was appropriate. Well, that was then, and this is now. Cable has brought R and even X-rated programs to the small screen, and besides that, screens have multiplied like rabbits, laptops, tablets, smartphones, video games, texting. Screens are not bad. They serve many good purposes, but they are ubiquitous and tantalizing, and time on screens means you are not doing something else. So most parents, I know, try to limit screen time, both in terms of content and actual time. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that kids' entertainment screen time be limited to less than one or two hours per day. And for kids under two, none at all. This is a major source of friction, if not World War III, in many homes. <laughs> the child is likely to say something like, you're ruining my life, while the parent is thinking, no, in fact, I'm trying to keep you from ruining your life. The question of whether and how limits and rules might keep us from ruining our lives is placed before us this morning in the form of the Ten Commandments. Our passage this morning is the first of three versions of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, so they must be pretty important. But there's always been significant ambiguity about the role of the Ten Commandments in our modern lives. By one count, there are 4,000 public displays of the Ten Commandments. Zeal for the commandments runs high, but so does ignorance. A 2004 Barna poll showed that 79% of Americans opposed the idea of removing those displays of the Ten Commandments from government buildings even though another survey revealed that fewer than 10% of Americans can identify more than four of the commandments. Garrison Keillor quips that the real reason you can't have the Ten Commandments in a courthouse is that you cannot post, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, and thou shalt not lie in a building full of politicians. <laughs> it creates a hostile work environment. The first four commandments talk about our relationship with God, and the last six talk about our relationships with each other. But there is a bigger pattern and purpose here than a list of do's and don'ts. The Ten Commandments do not begin with a command, but with a claim. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. From that central claim flow all the commandments. The God we worship is the God who first and foremost majors in freedom. In whatever ways God's people seem intent on falling back into multiple kinds of slavery, this God is always in the business of searching for ways to grant these would-be slaves a perfect freedom. God is and always will be on the side of freedom. Now, for folks like us living in a culture of extreme individualism, it might seem counterintuitive that a list of restrictions and commands has anything to do with freedom. Just ask your kid who wants more screen time. 
the way most of us encounter the Ten Commandments, it makes sense that we'd see it this way. Amy Merrill Willis describes a typical use of the Ten Commandments as a moral guide. She writes, as a relatively earnest kid in a Catholic school, teachers regularly gave us lengthy reflection guides based on the Ten Commandments. Some of the questions were completely inappropriate for us as fifth and sixth grade kids, asking, for instance, if we had committed adultery. The question was delicately, delicately worded, running something like this. Have you done anything to violate the sanctity of another person's marriage? Uh, what? <laughs> At that time, the Ten Commandments were only about personal conduct, a checklist for good behavior. The goal of the commandments was about being good, staying right with God and scary sister Beatrice, and most of all, avoiding guilt. This is the reality of simple moralism. It tends to be utterly self-centered. I suspect this is the way most people see the Ten Commandments, in legal terms, rules intended to govern personal conduct, also serving to measure our personal virtue by means of a moral and all-too-often self-satisfying checklist. No murder today, check. No adultery, check. But that opening claim points to an entirely different purpose. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. The Ten Commandments are meant to show us how a liberated people live a new life. Real freedom doesn't mean doing anything you want whenever you want to whomever you want. Think about it. That might mean freedom for a few, but it ends up being tyranny for everyone else. Freedom is not when the powerful take whatever they want, but when we respect the property of others. Freedom is not when the strong dominate the weak, but when the lives of all, the impoverished, those with disabilities, the vulnerable, the elderly, or the young, all are protected and their rights are respected. Freedom is not the endless satisfaction of every impulse, regardless of commitment or relationship or our neighbors. As Jesus makes very clear, the commandments can be boiled down to love God without holding anything back and love your neighbor as yourself. The Ten Commandments give us the most basic description of what that looks like. God says, okay, let me be a little bit more explicit. Make sure everyone gets a day off once a week. Take care of the elderly. Don't kill, don't steal, don't mess around with someone else's spouse. Don't hurt your neighbor with your words. Don't be jealous of your neighbor's stuff. That's how you love your neighbor. As Rolf Jacobson writes, because the law isn't about you, it's about your neighbor. And God loves your neighbor so much that God gives you the law. And God loves you so much that God gives your neighbor the exact same law. That's why Jesus intensifies the law in the Sermon on the Mount to push us to imagine what it would be like to live in a world where we honor our neighbor as persons who are truly blessed and beloved by God. It's not enough, Jesus says, to avoid murder. You also have to treat each other with respect, not letting yourself fly off the handle in anger, because that, too, demeans and diminishes God's children. 
Jesus wants us to regard each other as God regards us, and thereby to treat each other accordingly. Jesus calls us to look beyond the law to see its goal, the life and health and freedom of our neighbor as well as ourselves. Jesus invites us to envision life in God's kingdom as a glorious freedom shaped not by obeying laws, but rather by holding the welfare of our neighbors close to our hearts while trusting that they do the same for us. The people had lost track of that purpose, the purpose for which they were set free, when they turned the law into an opportunity to win over God by proving how law-abiding they were. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The God who loves us that much does not need to be won over. Brian McLaren writes, the truth is that we're all on a wilderness journey out of some, out of some form of slavery. On a personal level, level, we know what it is to be enslaved to fear, alcohol, food, rage, worry, lust, shame, inferiority, or control. On a social level, in today's version of Pharaoh's economy, millions at the bottom of the pyramid work like slaves and still never get ahead. And even those at the top of the pyramid feel the lash of their own inner slave drivers, greed and debt, competition, expectation, and a desperate, addictive craving for more, more, more. Exiting from today's personal and social slavery won't be easy. It will require something like a wilderness journey into the unknown. The Ten Commandments is a map for that journey toward loving our neighbors, where real freedom lies. But it isn't simple, is it? The path to freedom is through a wilderness of uncertainty and hard choices, and it takes a community of encouragement and discernment to help us figure out exactly how to love God and our neighbors, which is the only sure way we will all be free. It's complicated. Take screen time, for example. Last week, there was a story on NPR about a UCLA study that actually makes a connection between screen time and loving our neighbors. Researchers studied two groups of sixth graders. One group was sent to an outdoor education camp for five days, and during that time, they had no access to electronic devices. No screens, no games, no Facebook, no texting, none of it. For the other group, it was life as usual. At the beginning and at the end of the five days, both groups of kids were shown images of nearly 50 faces and asked to identify the feelings being modeled. Researchers found that students who went to camp scored significantly higher when it came to reading facial emotions or other nonverbal cues than the students who'd continued to have access to their media devices. Just five days. Instead of texting and gaming, the students who were at the outdoor ed camp were working together, face-to-face, -to -face, constantly decoding each other's expressions, their tone of voice and body language. The take-home 
is that screen use may be inhibiting kids' ability to relate to people. Relating to people takes practice. So the next time your child tells you you're ruining his life by limiting his screen time, tell him that it's just one way that we as parents can help him not ruin his neighbor's life. I'm reminded of Albert Einstein's words, our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening the circle of compassion. The night before he was arrested, Jesus gathered his companions for a meal. It was the Passover meal. They remembered their liberation from slavery and they celebrated their freedom. At his invitation, we gather around this table this morning at this meal of liberation and reconciliation with Christians all over the world today, people on this same journey of freedom, a freedom described so beautifully in Jan Richardson's communion blessing. She writes, and the table will be wide, and the welcome will be wide, and the arms will open wide to gather us in, and our hearts will open wide to receive, and we will come as children who trust there is enough, and we will come unhindered and free. And our aching will be met with bread, and our sorrow will be met with wine, and we will open our hands to the feast without shame, and we will turn toward each other without fear, and we will give up our appetite for despair, and we will taste and know of delight and we will become bread for a hungering world, and we will become drink for those who thirst, and the blessed will become a blessing, and everywhere will be the feast. That is freedom. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.